Hello and welcome to the next episode of the American Filmmaker Podcast. I am your host, Josh Hyde, and this is a very special episode because this is the 51st episode of the American Filmmaker Podcast. Now, for everybody listening who doesn't know what that means, there are major magazines trying to move the culture of cinema that don't even have a podcast. There are major magazines who are trying to move the culture of cinema or supposedly move the culture of cinema and they don't even have 30 podcast episodes. So that's what we do at the American Filmmaker Podcast. Our job is to go into the culture of how stories are told through film and creativity. And we meet the creators so that all the listeners can have an authentic connection with the people who actually make the work. Because in the entertainment industry, there is a series of middle humans who constantly subvert or navigate how the story reaches the audience. Today, we are in the age of authenticity. And we talk about that in this podcast a little bit. And what that means is, if it's not real, it's not right. And so there are constantly people trying to fake or transact on the real creativity that happens in the process of bringing a story to audiences. Mark Metcalf, he started as a theater actor and then eventually started doing film and TV. And what happened was in one of his early major roles in TV, he kind of creates the archetype of the angry white man. And that role was in Animal House. And this character follows him for the rest of his life. But what's interesting is he's way more complex. And so we go through Mark's whole life of creativity, having a family, and trying to make it all work. This episode is a partner companion to the last episode, which is episode 49, where we interview the filmmaker behind the short documentary character. And so I think anybody listening who hasn't had 50 to 60 years in the entertainment industry, in the theater industry, or on this planet Earth creating needs to listen to this podcast because I think Mark really gets rid of a lot of the illusions that we all have. This podcast was recorded at the Big Sky Documentary Film Festival, where I got a chance to sit and meet with Mark Metcalf. I just want to thank the Big Sky Documentary Film Festival for really creating this space to allow these stories and these podcast episodes to exist. It's truly one of the best film festivals I've been to in the world, and I've been to most of them. I'm really excited to hear about how the Big Sky Documentary Film Festival is evolving to kind of take more control of the space that really the entertainment industry is failing at. So I appreciate all of the storytelling power and all of the creativity that the Big Sky Film Institute and the Big Sky Documentary Film Festival bring into this world for audiences to see. I hope you enjoy this episode. 
I just want to welcome the subject and also a well-known actor, Mark Metcalf, to the American Filmmaker Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. With most people, well, it's strange that you're... I sounded like Elvis Presley there, didn't I? Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, never mind. No, that was good. That was good. We need more Elvis on this show. That's right. We need more Elvis everywhere. He smells a little now. Do we need him? And so you are both an actor in SAG, but in this short film... And Equity, too, which is the Stage Actors Union. So within this film, you are kind of the subject of the documentary character. Yes, yes. It's, it's about me. It's about... But it's far from being a puff piece about me. It's... Uh, the process was interesting because uh, I started talking to Vera and she was recording just audio and I didn't know where we are going or what we were going to do. And we just talked for probably, I think, about six hours of audio we had recorded. And then uh, I had no video. And uh, so, so it's a completely new process for me because when you work as an actor in a play or in a film or a television show, you have a, an arc to the character. You know something about where you're going and where you end. But in this, I had no idea. So I was telling the story of myself, which is what actors are doing anyway, whether they're playing Niedermeyer or playing Romeo, you're telling the story of some part of yourself, but you have a sense of what that path is. In this, I had no sense. It was like stepping off a cliff into Vera's arms, and I had to trust those arms. Figurative arms, not literal, right? Yeah, and I think that's a really good way to describe the creative process, too. Just the level of trust. Right. It is. I mean, I, I've said since when I said in Sundance at a Q&A afterwards that you engage... I mean, when I was a young actor, it's not what I... It wasn't part of my process, but as I've gotten older and become more suspicious of the of other people's processes you engage with love and then you turn yourself over to trust so when you meet someone you're going to work with you first find out whether or not you can love them in 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 one of not the eros greek sense but the other the last i can't remember what it's called the la there are four different senses of love that the greeks talk about so you engage there and then you turn yourself over to this trust, which is part of that aspect of love. That's how you begin. And then from then on, you, you duke it out on the, in the arena. <laughs> but once you've engaged that way, it's okay to struggle and to suffer and to fight and to, because you already know that. You know that initial step. It's like the uh, launching pad. Trust allows that launching pad into the creative process that produces a new work. Right, exactly, exactly. Can you tell me a little bit about how you came to acting? Yeah, I went to college as an engineer. My father was an engineer. I thought it would, I actually, unconsciously probably, but maybe there was a conscious level of thought that this would be a way that I could actually begin to have a conversation with my father because he was a relatively distant guy, very involved in his job, as men were at that time. So I went to college as an engineer and quickly got bored with that and transferred to architecture because I thought it was a little bit more creative. I wasn't thinking this is more creative. I need to be more creative. My sophomore year, my roommate, 
who was an engineer also, said, come audition with me to the theater department. Audition, they're doing the three parts of Henry VI, audition. The girls are really friendly in the theater department. So that was all I needed to know. So I went and I auditioned and I got 15 parts in the three parts of Henry. None of them had very many lines, one scene and a couple of my lord, the army is at the gate or things like that. But I did makeup changes. I did costume changes. I really went into it, jumped completely off the launching pad, off the cliff, into the arms of this theater experience. And, uh, and it was a revelation to me because in my home where I'd grown up, people spoke politely, they spoke reasonably, they spoke rationally, they uh, uh, solved problems the way dad said to solve the problems. And in the theater, they were completely irrational and crazy and passionate, and they'd be uh, screaming at each other one minute, and the next minute they'd be having sex on the couch in the green room, or near sex. And uh, and this was a, this, I felt like Miranda in The Tempest, Oh, Brave New World, What Creatures Are There Here? And this, it really sort of struck many, many chords in my, uh, you know, 18, 19-year-old being, which was completely unformed. And uh, I haven't been able to get away from it since. And I still love that experience of being in a room with a bunch of other people and making stories up and telling stories. And that happens more in the theater than it tends to happen in film and television. But the mechanism is still the same in film and television. You just don't get that sitting in a room with a bunch of people making stuff up for four weeks before you go and do it in front of a live audience. What year was it when you had these early theater experiences? And then how did that transition into more film and more film and TV work? Well, it was, I went to college in 1964, so it would have been 65. And film and television didn't even enter into my thinking. It was only theater. The one television experience I did, one of my jobs to pay my way through college, I had like three jobs. I washed dishes and cooked at a, a hash house after where people came to sober up after Friday night and Saturday night. And my shift was in from like 10 o'clock at evening until four in the morning. And my other job was besides, oh, I also got a job working in a scene shop, building scenery. And then I got a job running a camera at the local public television network. And they did uh, three parts. They did uh, uh, a bunch of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. And I, they asked me, because I was an actor by then, I was studying, I was in the theater department. And uh, so they asked me to be in them. So I did that. And then the first time I saw myself when I watched this, I went to the bathroom and threw up immediately. And that was not a good experience. I didn't, I really didn't like seeing myself on this little screen. So I didn't touch film or TV. I, I went and got a job at Milwaukee Rep and did a season there. And then I moved to New York and did the theater. And I essentially told my agent, no television, no film. I'm only a theater actor. And it wasn't just, it was somewhat pretentious that I wanted to do literature, but it was also this sort of fear of throwing up again 
and being sick and making myself sick. The next time I finally relented because they, uh, a fellow named Jack Shoulder and Paul Gurian, he, Jack Shoulder was the director, Paul Gurian was the producer, and both of them went on to direct and produce a lot of different things, asked me to do, they were going to do a short film called The Garden Party based on a Catherine Mansfield short story, a short story that I knew, and it was literature, so I appreciated it from my pretentious heights. And it was a good cast. Beatrice Strait was in it, Jessica Harper, who went on to do a lot of good stuff, and Beatrice Strait, who was nominated for Academy Award for Network. Uh, I can't remember some of the other cast, but it was good. And we were shooting up in Woodstock, uh, Vermont. And it was a good experience. It was a wonderful experience. That was the next time that I saw myself when I finally saw the finished product, and I got an erection. <laughs> so the first time I saw myself... I threw up, and the second time I saw myself, I got an erection. So obviously, I had changed. I'm not sure that it was because my work was all that much better, but I'd changed in the way I viewed myself. And from then on, I, I began to say yes to certain film and television things. Uh, the first film that I did, major film that I did, was directed by Fred Zinnerman. And you can't, and Fred Zinnerman asked me to do it. He, I was doing a play in New York called Streamers at uh, Lincoln Center. And you don't say no to a guy who directed High Noon and got an Academy Award for it. You don't say no to a guy who put Marlon Brando in his first film, put Monty Clift in his first film. And I didn't have those kinds of pretensions, but I knew that. So you don't say no to, to Fred Zinnerman. So I, I acted in that film. I got to go to England for six weeks, was paid for six weeks. I worked for three days. I had a one-scene part with Jane Fonda, a film called Julia about from Lillian Hellman's book, uh, Pentimento, but eventually, essentially her memory, her memoir about her friend Julia. Vanessa Redgrave played Julia. Fonda played uh, Hellman. Um, Dashiell Hammett had been a hero of mine since I first read any Continental Opt stories. Uh, and I knew of his relationship with Hellman, and Jason Robards played Hellman, and I, so I did that, and I was paid beautifully, gave me a per diem. I lived in England for six weeks. I shot for three days, as I said. I got to travel around England, travel around Ireland. I thought all movies were going to be like this. <laughs> so I was seduced by the, by the money and the atmosphere and, and very obviously talented, good people. Uh, right about a week, 10 days before the movie opened in New York, I got a call from the producers. I think Stephen Roth was his name. I think he's passed now. And Fred called me later and said, we're really sorry, but Gareth Wigan, who was the head of 20th Century Fox, thinks the movie is 20 minutes too long. So we've had to cut 20 minutes out of it. And your five minute scene with Jane is gone. Most of Meryl Streep is almost gone, if that makes you feel any better. But she was still in it a lot of it. It was her first movie, too. And uh, so I'm not in the movie. My name is still in the end credits. When it opened in New York, my name was in the opening credits, which was a thrill. But I don't get a residual check either. And it's a good movie. It's a good movie. I'd like to be in it, but I'm not in it. But... That's so I forget what the question was, but that was a long answer to the question. That was a really wonderful answer to the question. It was uh, it it took us on the journey. 
Okay, good. And then we are going with you on this journey. Great. Because I understand that level of seduction. There is something seducing about the entertainment industry, but it's really good to hear you talk about it from a grounded state. It is a seductive business, the glamour of it. The uh, I was just talking to a friend of mine. Uh, they come and they give you great back rubs. I mean, and, and, and I mean that literally, Fonda had, as part of her contract, her personal masseuse on the set all the time. Gave her a, a mas full massage, full body massage in the morning before we'd work, after lunch, and later on in the afternoon when she'd get off. And for an extra, I don't know what it was, 20 pounds or something like that, anybody else could get her when she was free to give a massage. So you'd get a massage. So it's, it's a very, movie business is a very comfortable place to work. It's really nice. I'm still, I go back to the stage whenever I can. And in 2000, I walked, as, as we say, we talk about in this movie character, I walked away. I was tired of the biz I was tired of not spending time in the room with a bunch of people making up stories, as I alluded to earlier. I was tired of showing up and finding out, meeting the woman who was going to be my wife, who was telling me she was running off with the pool boy in the afternoon. This is not literal. This is figurative. But it's like that. In the morning at makeup and then uh, having to play that scene, uh, two hours later, after you've gotten made up and looked at her and maybe rehearsed lines with her, through the mirror while you're facing the mirror because the makeup and hair person needs you to face the mirror. And that's the extent of your rehearsal. That's the extent of your creative, the creative process that I know and love, which is being in those rooms for four weeks with people and making up stories and integrating yourself with their self and coming up with it. Uh, so it's much more instantaneous. That's the way it happens in television. Movies, sometimes you get rehearsal Sometimes you don't. On Animal House, we had maybe three or four days of hanging out together and improvising together and just learning each other. So we had that. And it was, uh, Landis set it up really nicely, set the deltas up against the uh, omegas for anybody who doesn't know this movie, Animal House, get out from under the rock and come and see it. These experiences are important to hear about, you know, because you know, listening to how you talked about the rehearsal process on the other end of the camera, when I'm casting for the narrative work, my way to test the actor to see if they're just in it for the glory and not the story, or they're in it for the transaction and not the, you know, transformation, so to speak, of what the final work could do, is if there's no money for rehearsals, would they like to rehearse? Because the, you know, because if they would like to rehearse, can we create a space for that? And maybe if we can, then can we siphon some of the other budget? I don't need the money to rehearse. I'd love to just hang out. And if people are like, oh, no, we've got other, well, then I know, okay, you're transacting now. And even if you're protecting your client, your client or, or the artist, this human artist who puts emotions into them, creates a character, and then we see it on screen then, you know, are you speaking on their behalf? And so usually they have to go, well, let me just check. Okay, cool. Now I know. And, and then when they check, then they'll come back and say, yeah, we can rehearse. And even though it's not three to four weeks or even the large amount of time that a theater gets, it's, it's important to have that trust, that launching pad. And so going back to the launching pad that Landis was able to create on Animal House, 
which is an epic movie. What happened um, or how did you get cast in that? And then what kind of trust space was created to bring the crew together before, you know, going into the creative war? Because your character in many ways in the movie is this archetyped, but I don't think it's you, you know? It's a funny story, and I've told it a lot, uh, but I'll bore you with it again. Um, I went in to audition. I was told I was reading for the character of Otter. I read the script. Uh, Otter is the Tim Matheson part in the movie. Uh, Gets all the girls. I thought, well, this will be fun. This will be great. Uh, Because even though I was... 28, 29, something like that. I was still interested in girls a lot. Um, As soon as I walked in the door, Landis looked at me and said, do you know how to ride? And I knew because I'd read the script, I knew what he was talking about. And I said, practically born on a horse. My mother's water broke when we were out on a trail ride in our ranch in Montana. And she slid off the horse. And my dad delivered me right there in the shadow of the horse. He delivered calves. He could deliver a human. He did that, cleaned me up, got back on the horse and rode rode back down to to the house. And Landis looked at me and said, yeah, right. calling me on my lie instantly. So I told him five more lies about how I knew how to ride, and I'd been riding all my life. And uh, um, he said, thank you very much. And I thought, oh, well, I probably blew that and left. But the next day, he called me and said, I want you to do this part. And I said, this is the punchline. I said, great, John, do you think you can get Universal to give me some money so I can learn how to ride? So I took classes from, or lessons from a really great little German woman at Claremont Stables in Central Park. I was living in New York at the time. Um, uh, and, learn, and learned how to ride and learned, I knew how to ride because I had ridden, but I wasn't born on a, in the shade of a horse on this hillside in Montana. I had never been to Montana until uh, I moved here, well, until I came here to fish in 1988. So that was, that was how I got cast. And then what happened was, I think a month or two. I was the second person cast. Belushi was the first person cast because it was really built around him. And Landis intuitively or maybe consciously knew that he needed to get the two poles of the movie. He had Belushi, so he wanted to cast the antithesis. And Niedermeyer, which is the character that rides a horse, is sort of is the antithesis of Belushi in a way, uh, as as out there and free and loose and... And uh, hip as Belushi is, Niedermeyer is bound as tight as you can get bound. John invited all, had all the, uh, talk about rehearsal, your concept before, had all the Delta house, Belushi's house, come out five days early, I think, five or six days early. And they got to know each other. They went to a uh, fraternity party and got beaten up. Uh, because the fraternity was a jock fraternity. It wasn't a plan. It was just, and uh, one of them, it was, I think it happened the day before we shot. And uh, who had, uh, Jimmy Widows broke a tooth. They had to go that, get that. Uh, Bruce McGill, who was the, the fighter of the group, the others were all talkers, uh, had a black eye. They had to cover that with makeup for several days. So it drove Landis crazy. And Cliff Coleman, the beautiful, brilliant uh, first AD who'd been, who'd been the first AD on everything since, since uh, they conceived of the Bible, I think. But he was a great, great guy. 
he covered for them for a while and then he couldn't. I was invited out about three days after they'd been there. So they'd been there for three days. I get to the set. I fly out, first of all, from New York with Karen Allen, who I'd never met before. By the time we get to Eugene, Oregon, I'm totally madly in love with with Karen Allen. She's not with me, but I was. she was beautiful. I mean, everybody knows Karen Allen now and knows why I was in love with her. I get to the production office. Uh, Peter McGregor Scott was the uh, was the production manager. He gives me my per diem. I knew enough about acting in movies by this time to know that you get your per diem right away, just in case they see you and they say, oh, no, you're not the Mark Metcalf we want, and they send you home. At least you've got bus fare to get home. So I got my per diem, and Peter McGregor Scott says, Landis wants to talk to you. He's across the street in the coffee shop with some of the guys across the parking lot in the coffee shop. Uh, leave your stuff here and go over and see him. So I go over to this coffee shop in the Roadway Inn in Springfield, uh, Oregon. We shot it in Eugene, but we lived in Springfield. And I walk in this crowded coffee shop because it's lunchtime. And uh, I see John and a bunch of people at this booth, big booth in the corner. And I knew McGill because we'd drunk together in New York in the same bars. I thought I knew Peter Riegert because I'd seen him around. The rest of the people are total strangers to me, but John I knew from auditioning for him. And uh, uh, so John waves at me and I start across this crowded room and I get about 10 feet from the table and Landis says, points at me and says, that's him, that's Niedermeyer, get him. And they start throwing food at me and catcalling and yelling at me, immediately putting me on this humiliating, humiliating me in front of this crowd of people that I didn't even know and uh, putting me on the defensive. And I knew then intuitively that I was in a safe place and that I was working. I wasn't just sitting around with a bunch of guys talking about, you know, what we were going to do tonight or what we were going to do. I was working because this is this that was the setup. He set them up there and me over here. And later on, the next day or two days later, McGill stole a piano from the lobby of the Roadway Inn, wheeled it across the parking lot to his room, put it in his room, and his room became party central. I went to the hotel and asked them to move my room so it was directly above McGill's room, above Party Central, because I knew I wouldn't be going to Party Central and partying with these guys because I just, I don't know why I knew that. It's just the way I work. And uh, I didn't want to, I, I liked them. They were all friends and they remain friends to this day. But I knew that I needed to keep a distance because these guys were... You talked about, I don't know if you used the word war, but you, I, this was the war that we would be telling the story of. So my room being right above his room, I couldn't get to sleep at night. So I would stay up all night studying my script until they went to, until they quieted down, until the guitars stopped strumming and the piano started banging and the laughter stopped. I'd study my script and spit polish my boots, my riding boots. I got costumes to give me my riding boots, and I would spit polish them with a candle and and uh, 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 spit and just all night long studying my script, getting tireder and tireder and madder and madder. Again, this is just this is an actor's my process, and uh, and then I could take that to the set the next day. 
So, but Landis had the intuitive or, or genius knowledge to cast people that were actors, not that were movie stars, and to set that up, to set that polarity up. And we, I knew enough to trust him that I was in a safe place and trust these other people that they were professionals. And I think that's a big part of why the movie, it's a great script. The cast is good, but the cast is good because they're all, there aren't any movie stars in it. There aren't any television stars. And John Belushi was not even big yet on Saturday Night Live. He'd done, he was doing, I think it was second season or third season of Saturday Night Live. So people knew who he was. But he, he was also not surrounded by his crowd. He was surrounded by people who did the work. And uh, I think it's the biggest reason why the movie is successful, besides the fact that it's a script, that he's John Landis set this room up. I always talk about the room that you are in. And uh, he set this room up in this particular way. And uh, we took it and played with it. You talk about chemistry in movies, and chemistry is a manufactured thing. It happens if you're lucky, but a lot of time you have to make it happen. You have to seek out the chemical components of that other person across the table from you and, and, and harmonize with them and make them work with your body and your voice as part of your body and your whole creative energy. Yeah. That's not too piece of granola, but it's a little bit. Uh. Well, and really, as I was listening to your words, you're really talking about method acting and using the natural elements of the space to basically help get this character into motion. Can you talk about, you know, where you learned the method from or like what kind of traditions in the method acting did you have? Or like maybe not even that as much as where'd that process come from? And then in a way, how this evolves is the process that you've done creates this character type that follows you around right. after you've established it. Right. So it worked, but it almost worked too well. It almost worked too well. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, I, and that's my fault for saying yes all the time when they offered me a job uh, to parts like the Twisted Sister video, which perpetuated it, to parts like... Uh, What's his name? Achilles Beckerstad in uh, One Crazy Summer, uh, to lots of different things that I've done, and it and and even to a, a nice part in a wonderful script called Mr. North that Danny Houston directed to Bob Mitchum's in, and but I even I this is where I make the mistake because I let it infect that, and it has no place in that. Danny loved the character. And so I, there's one scene that I'm always embarrassed by because uh, it's a nice movie. Uh, I can't remember the name of the character I played, uh, Mary Stuart Masterson's father, but where the lead character comes to the door and I yell and scream at him. Danny kind of wanted me to yell and scream at him. I knew how to do that. It's what I did. It's what I was known for. People stopped me on the street by that time, wanted me to do it, so I did it, and I shouldn't have done it. I played it. I didn't play it organically from inside, as you say, the method, just to go back to the notion of the method, the method is often related to Lee Strasberg and the actor's studio and Marlon Brando and all that. And that did set a tone. 
I never studied at the actor's studio. I went and observed a lot of it, and I thought a lot of it was self-indulgent by that time. I watched Lee work, but they, there was a lot of Strasbourg, but there was a lot of good stuff, but there was also, it was going in a bad direction. I do have a method. I want to teach at some point so that I can understand what my method is because a lot of it has become intuitive. It's been, I've broken it down as we go, as I've gone along, but in order for it to work fluidly and organically, you have to get rid of the, you have to go beyond the science of it. And I'd like to teach because I need to break it down again to see what it is, what the, because it's my, it's my method. I don't think anybody else does it. I studied with Stella Adler. I learned a lot from her. Uh, I studied with a guy named Wynne Handman. who used to run the American Place Theater in, in New York. Uh, I studied with Michael, a guy named Michael Howard, who came out of uh, Sandy Meisner's Neighborhood Playhouse, I believe, and had, took a lot of it w with him. I've taught a workshop based on Sandy Meisner. So I've, I've tried to always study uh, acting, study voice, and always study movement the three the main elements of what it takes to be an actor until I walked away from it in 2000, as I said. That's when I stopped. But so I, my method is an amalgamation of all these different methods. I wouldn't say that I do what an actor studio does, but it does have to do with, with immersion, with uh, finding a soundtrack that I can listen to on headsets or I can listen to uh, on on a record player, if that's what I have, whatever. So I can find music that puts me in a place for uh, the master in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Well, during the five hours of getting the makeup put on, I would listen to these old, crazy chants. Not, not Gregorian chants, they're like older than that, but these monks chanting. And it, it sounds like and feels like you're deep underground in a cave. It has that kind of... Uh, earthy feel to it that just sort of that sort of brought me to that place and I would read stuff as much as I could about the vampire lore the cartoony stuff and also the real stuff uh, you just you try to rearrange the cells of your body so that they point in the direction that the character you're playing is going I mean that sounds crazy maybe but it's true a great French actor Jean-Louis Barrault who is in one of my favorite people always say, what's your favorite movie of all time? Les Enfants de Paradis, which is uh, Jean-Louis Barrault and a couple of other French, a bunch of other French actors, which is a wonderful movie. But Barrault did a, I didn't, wasn't there, but I read about it. He did a, a, a talk once about acting. And he, he said at one point, I'm going to be quiet now. And I want you, and I want you to just look at me. And then in five minutes, tell me what part of my body you're looking at, you tend to look at the most. And 10 minutes later or five minutes later, everybody said your right hand. He, he said, and he may have been just pulling a Donald Trump and uh, being a, a big con, but I don't believe him. He said, I was directing my blood flow to my right hand. I was directing the energy, the electricity, and the flow of my blood to my right hand. And that's why you were looking there, because there's more heat coming from that. I think that's possible. I mean, it, the monks in Tibet sit in frozen lakes, break a hole and sit there, and the ice doesn't freeze around them. I mean, we can do things with our body 
that we don't, that are magical or that we th that are perceived as magical, but there's science behind them. Uh, I don't claim to be able to sit in a frozen lake. I'd like to, though, uh, just to see if I could. In listening to this lesson, I think it, Tai Chi talks about this. There's a Lao Gong point. It's basically, I call it the Iron Man point, and it's in the center of your palm. And so what's crazy is if you just take your fingers, and if your thumb and your pinky are in a war, and you move them apart from each other, those will eventually kind of move apart the metatarsals or whatever these other bones are that connect to your wrist. And then you take your palm, which is flat, and you can do this on a table. And then you have your palm actually reach to touch the table. So if you just put your hand on the table and then spread the fingers and then try to take the middle of your palm and touch the table, eventually the water will flow to that area. And so this is a great lesson. Actors are using this other body that the ancient internal arts knew about, and they're using it to magnify these emotions. And while I was listening to you, I wrote down, wow, Mark Metcalf. I never knew he would be the Bruce Lee of acting techniques. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. I would be happy to be, uh, to be, yeah, no, maybe if I start to teach, I'll, people will start to think of me that way. And in spite of what Quentin Tarantino said about Bruce Lee. <laughs> I'm not sure what he said, but I'm sure. Um, well, it just did the way he portrayed him in the, in the film well, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Well, I mean, there's different things about Bruce Lee, too, that people don't know about. I got a chance to work with Bruce Lee's nephew, uh, Damien. And basically, Bruce Lee's from a very well-to-do family in, I believe, Hong Kong. And then I met his, his dad, Robert Ho, who was, is it Robert Ho? Robert Lee, maybe? But then that was Bruce, Bruce Lee's elder brother. And then he actually looked like Bruce Lee. But, you know, our Tai Chi teacher talks about it. And what he says is, you know, you know, Bruce Lee, there was probably some womanizing there. Um, but then also once, once Bruce had died, Linda had to bring the kids and travel around. And like the martial arts community started to support them. And then my teacher, when she was traveling to Colorado, brought them on a skiing trip and stuff like that. Yeah, and so it's this, you your, know... Your Tai Chi teacher was a female? Uh, no, my Tai Chi teacher is not a female, but um, he's, he's a male. But then, you know, there was just certain connections to the entertainment industry. Right. So, like, my Tai Chi teacher's, I think, cousin Dougie was, like, the fat monk on uh, Kane, you know, the... <laughs> right, sure. Uh, on uh, a Kung Fu, the series right, David with... David yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's all these weird things that, like, no one realized where the crossover of internal martial arts with the rest of the arts really is. So it just appears. And so that's great that you are the Bruce Lee of acting. <laughs> take what works and leave the rest. <laughs> right, I will. Thanks, I will. I'll take that. Um, I'm not going to put it on my business card, but no, I'm, no. Going to, <laughs> I'm going to take it and, and work that into my, into my being. Um, so where are we on this journey now? Because we're... Um, Animal House, are we? Yeah, or Animal House. And then, no, we got into Twisted Sister and right. basically how this technique and process that you developed to kind of put the script inside of you so that you could be a good collaborator with all these teams produced a typecast and then how did that typecasting in a way you know start to make it all less less bright less enjoyable less seductive 
at the first level of how thinking about how it betrayed me or I betrayed it is is the fact that that's what you do every time anybody asks you to do anything. They want you to do that character. They don't know what that character can be or what you can be if you're asked to play Romeo. Now on stage, I have played Romeo and I, I was I was a good Romeo. On stage, I can do a lot of different and have done a lot of different things. The movies and television tend to tend to uh, I talk about it in character. You're asked to niche out, to find your niche. It's a business proposition. You get jobs if you are if you're the three hundred pound funny guy. Keep, don't lose weight. Don't make yourself healthier. Be that guy because that's where you get work, and you'll always get work that way until you die of a heart attack. Uh, if you're the angry guy who yells at people, do that. And if they offer you money and they offer you back rubs and they offer you uh, uh, good food at the craft service table, uh, trips to different parts of the country to add to do this, I, you tend to take those jobs. Where I betrayed it is, as I said before, in Mr. North, when I have a character that doesn't ask me to do that, but the director hints around that he'd like, he loved that character, he'd like to see that, and I take a scene and push it in that direction, I've betrayed my method, I've betrayed myself, I've shamed myself, um, and shamed uh, and, and brought shame to the, um, to the, uh, to the work. So, that idea of niching out, and it eventually got to, and I was doing interesting stuff. I was playing the master in Buffy the Vampire. So I know Joss Whedon is no slouch when it comes to writing and, uh, uh, and producing and directing. He's, he's darn good. So I was doing that. That was fun. And I was doing, I did Seinfeld the same year, 97. I did Seinfeld, a character called the Maestro, which is has a different kind of pretension and a different kind of foolishness. And so I was getting to do different things, but still I was not taking the time that I need, I need to take to really allow a character and a story to enter into my cells, to arrange my cells so they're all going in one direction. Uh, over the course of a season on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I was able to do that because every episode allowed me to sort of find a new direction to, to move this character in because the writing was that good and I had that time. I had a season to develop it, which is great. I mean, a lot of good, good, good movie actors are now loving to do television because you can do in... Uh, six episodes or eight episodes, you can d develop a character that's much more akin to a kind of character that Tolstoy might have directed, developed in a 600-page novel than it is in the usual 99-page script that you get. I was doing good stuff, but still I wasn't able to spend... I mean, I'd get... For, on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I would get to the set at four in the morning to do five hours of makeup so that I could be uh, on set ready for my first shot at 10 in the morning or at 10.30 in the morning. That time was spent alone. 
with the makeup person who becomes your best friend, but you have to be still while all. So you're you're not in a room talking with people. You're not in a room developing a relationship, de developing, aligning your cells with their cells to go back to this sort of cellular way of thinking about it, a metaphor. Uh, and I miss that, and I, I like that. And I didn't, I really, in 2000, I really had gotten to the point where I felt like I had betrayed what I came to do uh, in 1970, wait, when did I first go to New York? 70, 1971, when I first moved to New York, when I first, my first professional paying job was at Milwaukee Repertory Theater uh, in 70. And uh, I came to it from a place where I wanted to create something. There's a great English saying about magpies. When you're driving down the road or walking down the road and you see magpies, it's really a great saying. One for a girl, two for a boy, three, I can't remember. Anyway, the last one, if you see seven magpies, five for silver, six for gold, seven for a story that's never been told. And you want to be the person that's telling that story that's never been told. And that takes time and focus and concentration. And I wasn't good enough, really, to take, or smart enough, to take that time to discover a story that's never been told about each character that I was doing. And uh, by not doing that, I felt like I was shaming it and shaming myself. So I wanted to walk away and I walked away. You know, as I was listening to your words again, you know, there's a lot of bad directors in TV and they're more like babysitters. And let's be honest about this. The crew calls them babysitters. The actors call them babysitters because once you're the actor in the show, what can they really tell you that you haven't developed in the character? Because you've got time to grow with the essence and then the writing and the crew, and then you develop that in front of camera intuition. So I think it's interesting because in a way, the process of the factory mechanicalness in a way allowed you to own a little bit of more of the character because yeah, they're going to bring in some director who's, you know, he's got an episode. She's got an episode or two. But the actors and the crew actually, in a way, own the space a little bit more because they're with the show the whole way. So you decided to leave in 2000. And then how did you meet Vera? I was going to do a play in Philadelphia and went to Milwaukee because it was about a true event, a play called American Journey. This is a really good play about two white cops who chased down a 12-year-old black boy in Milwaukee and kill him and cover it up with a plant a knife on him. And they, I'm sure they didn't shoot him just out of viciousness, but they did shoot him out of the plain old white supremacist viciousness. And uh, it was a really good play. But I went to Milwaukee to get the sound in my ear. This again, my, my method I could afford to. I walked around the place where it happened. I followed the path that the boy had run and just to sort of be in that space and try to absorb. And I was drinking a lot in those days. The first thing I did was go to, when I got off the plane in Milwaukee, was go to the bar. My woman was running the bar uh, named Libby Wick. She liked me. I liked her. I spent five days there absorbing the uh, um, sound and the place. And we fell in love, and I got came back after the play was done, and 
asked her to marry me, and we got married, and she moved to New York. You walk away from something you love. Right. And then you get to start again in making a new work, because this is most likely a new work as a play, right? This is not... Right, it was a brand new play. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and then all of a sudden, in this moment of creative inspiration, you're meeting a friend, and then you get a chance to rediscover love after you walked away. And so it, in a way, it's very beautiful. Well, it's interesting because that was a, a walk away. I was always walking away from movies and TV and going back to the theater. And this was one of those. But that was in 1989, before I walked away for good in 2000. But we had a child together. And we went back. She moved back to New York with me. I continued to work in the theater whenever I could. Uh, mostly, in fact, and was not doing film and television because I didn't. And then New York was tough in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, and uh, didn't suit her all that well. Uh, and I was getting uh, tired of the stuff that I was doing. I was married, and I really wanted to be with her, but I was on the road doing plays, either in Boston, doing a Hamlet and a Seagull, or in Chicago doing a Pete Gurney play, or I can't remember what, oh, or I came to California and did a film again, Oscar for John Landis. So I was away a lot and I wanted to be home and I thought moving. So we moved to California. And that's when I really started doing whatever came my way. And lots came my way, good, good stuff and dumb stuff. And because in California, you can work at home, you can live at home and go and do this sort of instant acting, like you described before, the, the manufactured stuff where you're in charge of it. If you want to be in charge of it, you're the actor, you bring the character. I didn't really want to be in charge of it that way. I didn't want to, didn't want to bring that same character or even... I wanted... I love the collaboration. I love the stuff that happens between two people. I mean, that's where the magic is. Shakespeare talks about it in Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, the lunatic, the lover, and the poet. And out of airy nothing, they create something. It's that space between people where... It, that's where the magic is, in the air. And, it's, and that's the wonderful thing about the theater. It's gone. It's gone. I have to snap my fingers close to the mic. It's gone like that. And it's just like life. Movies and television, the old thing, when I, like I said earlier, when I threw up when I first saw myself on, is related to the old Aboriginal or Indigenous people's notion that the camera steals their soul. Who knows what the soul is or where it resides or what it is. So you give something away when you act in front of a camera. And that's not why I left, but... It's part of the fabric of why I left, something about that. When I left, I left. I walked away in 2000. I walked away for good. I took my money, saved a bunch of money. I was married. I had a six-year-old child at the time. Was he six? He was six. Uh, we moved to where my wife was from, which is Milwaukee, and I took my money and I bought a restaurant. She had run restaurants for a living and uh, was really, really good at it. And she always wanted to own her own restaurant rather than working for other people. She ran for uh, ran a couple of different restaurants in New York when we lived there for Arc Restaurants, which owned like 24 restaurants. When we, she moved, when we moved to L.A., she went to work for, what's her name, Mary Sue Millican, who owned City Restaurant in La Ciudad downtown, and worked for them. And then the people, Arc Restaurants in New York, 
missed her so much that they bought a restaurant in Port Wainimi and asked her to run it. So we lived there, but she didn't, and then she ran all the food and beverage at uh, Universal Studios because they, Arc Restaurants, then took over the commissary there and not, not on the tour, but in the studio. So she was running that, but she wanted to have her own place. So I took my money. We, I left, we moved to Milwaukee, bought a restaurant north of Milwaukee in a little town called Mequon, big restaurant. It's a good story, actually. Uh, I won't bore you with it, all of it. Oh, okay. Please, please continue to bore me because I'm smitten right now. This is great. Keep, okay. Because this is the life's journey. I think when we don't provide space for this, we're actually robbing the creators of the true lessons. And we're not destroying the illusion that is used to steal our souls. Right. Okay. All right. I'm good. I'll go the whole way. Um we bought a place, a big, big place with three indoor heated sand volleyball courts attached to it, two bars, and we bought it. We Usually in a restaurant business, you, you lease a space. We couldn't find a space in the city of Milwaukee that could turn it over to us fast enough because we, we had a vision for what we wanted to do. I wanted to move to Montana because I'd been coming out to Montana to fish and I owned some property in Montana. She wanted to go back to where her family was. So the way I tell the story is that, so we compromised and we did what she wanted to do. Uh, yes, dear, is how marriages work, supposedly. But um, so we, we bought this place. We called it Libby. Her name is Libby, Montana. There's a town in Montana, Libby, Montana, that some people know about no comma between Libby and Montana in the name of the restaurant and, uh, uh, 260 seats. And it was a really good collaborative, creative enterprise for me, but the restaurant business puts a lot of strain on a relationship. She was fanatic about it, worked then 80 hours a week, now works about 60 hours a week. Still, uh, she got it in a divorce, but the intensity of the running a restaurant and i recommend it for anybody if you talk about war uh you go in a kitchen on a friday night fish fry night in wisconsin they do a fish fry every friday night. everybody does it and you're you can make you can pay your mortgage on a fish fry friday if you do it right and the rest of the week is easy but go into the kitchen with a dumb question and you're liable to lose your head because there it's war in there um, but after I was there for about, I guess I'd been there for about two months, a fellow named Rob, Rob Goodman came, and I'd turned my back, literally, really, on. I'd said, I'll come back to Hollywood and do stuff if anybody asks me, and they're paying good money. Nobody came right away. But Rob Goodman came in, and he said, listen, I'm the artistic director at a place called First Stage Children's Theater, and I'd like you to look at this play and think about doing this play. Now, he'd seen me do a play by David Rabe in New York at New Mitzi Newhouse at Lincoln Center called Streamers. Uh, really great play about four guys on their way to Vietnam in 1965 uh, in a barracks in, at Fort Benning, Georgia, having the big call up and uh, really brilliant play. And he'd seen me do that. and. Somehow he found out I was in town. He came up and asked, and I said, I don't want to do children's theater, ghosts and goblins. It's, it's, I take it too seriously. I wouldn't be able to 
make a joke of it that way. And he said, this is not that kind of play. The play was called Einstein, Hero of the Mind. It was myself and a 14-year-old actress and 47 puppets manned by six actors. And the puppets were arranged from 18-inch tall marionettes to 17-foot tall backpack puppets, what they call a backpack puppet, where you wear it in a backpack and you operate it. And I had to sing and I had to dance. I had to do stuff I'd never done on stage before. And I worked with this one wonderful uh, uh, actress. She was 14 at the time. She's much older now. Uh, went to Williams College. Kiki was her name. I can't remember her last name. Kiki, but she was great. And these other actors. And I read the script, and it was a brilliant script because it took Einstein from the time he was a, a seven-year-old boy and they thought he was retarded uh, as a 17-inch tall marionette puppet to when he was after the bomb on Hiroshima, which he took not credit for, but he found a lot of shame because it was his science. He wasn't part of the Manhattan Project, but it was his science. And he had written letters to FDR and urged him to pursue this science because it could create energy. And he spent, the legend is... Um, Two years, every day, he'd get in a rowboat in Princeton where he was teaching and living, and he'd go out on the lake in the rowboat and contemplate his participation in this scientific experiment that created a thing that changed the world. And this play looked at all of that. It looked at the Holocaust when he fled. It looked, we had piles of dead bodies on the sea, and it was done for children. But it did it in such a brilliant way that the children really um, got it. And playing in front of children and playing in front of children and with their parents or with their grandparents, which we did, and we played just in front of just children's schools, uh, reminded me, I get a little tearful when I talk about this, because it reminded me of what I had just sort of crawled away from throughout this career in the movies and television and doing all that stuff and and enjoying it when people stopped me on the street and said, you're that guy, you're that guy, aren't you? It reminded me of what I'd left behind, and it gave me an opportunity to rediscover it and to find it again. And working, and these young actors at First Stage Children's Theater in Milwaukee go through an academy that's there that's one of the best training grounds. There's some of the best actors to work with, some, some that are deeply talented and some that are just really good because they've learned the craft. They know what it means to be on time. They know what it means to know your lines. They know what it means to engage the other person and listen to them. They know what the craft is really like. And they are great at building, some of them are really great at building characters, some of them are okay. But working with them and working in front of them reminded me of what it's like, what the power that you have as an actor, what you can do with people who are sharing this experience with you in the audience. You can change minds if the minds are open and kids' minds are open. It's a huge responsibility. It's, it's a power, but like they say in Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. And uh, 
it, it reminded me of that, of all that, and got me back into loving it. But I've tried to stay in, in the theater experience because it allows for that and, and gives you the opportunity to do that. Not just children's theater, but, uh, but other theater. If you approach it the right way, you can open people's minds in ways like that. And uh, I'll still do movies and TV if people <laughs> ask me and if it's a good script and if I like the people and if I get a chance, to, like you say, to rehearse, even if it's just for a couple of days, but just to sort of begin to understand what that other person you're working with smells like and feels like and, and lives like so that you can align yourselves because that's the only way that you're going to open the audience's minds up to you is if you have that level of comfort and freedom and trust, the word we started this conversation with, um, the audience inherits that from you if you, the two people who are working together, have created that. That was about 2001 when I started working with the First Stage Children's Theater. I lived in Milwaukee until 2000. I moved there in 2000, bought the restaurant, got divorced in 2003, continued working at the restaurant till about 2006. My son, when we got divorced, uh, he spent half the time with his mother and half the time with me. It wasn't working out for him. It, he's on the spectrum. He had been diagnosed as being on the spectrum. Asperger's? Asper or? Asperger's is what they called it at the time. Now we refer to it as, as uh, ASD, Autism Spectrum Disorder. It's a misnomer to call it a, dis a, dis uh, a disorder, which it isn't really a disorder if you treat it correctly. I actually have come to believe, as some scientists have come to believe, that it might actually be an evolutionary step forward. Uh, and if you look at the list of people who have been diagnosed with Asperger's or on the spectrum, you think, yeah, they're a step forward. People like Bill Gates and things like that, and a lot of interesting people. Uh, they just don't function in the social way that we are more comfortable with people functioning but so he didn't like living with his he didn't like going back and forth so he moved in with me and he's lived with me since he was nine basically uh pretty much all the time he did very well in school because he's really really smart he knew he had love and support from both of his parents and uh so he didn't doubt himself too much so he succeeded at school he didn't succeed at being the most popular guy in school, he was horribly mocked and, and, and bullied uh, in lots of ways, but he learned ways to sort of let that pass right through him. And uh, uh, it's not that it goes over him or water off a duck's back, it goes through him, but he lets it go through him. He doesn't hold on to it. Uh, very smart kid. My Tai Chi teacher, his son is on the autism spectrum disorder. And so he taught his son Tai Chi so that if he would ever be bullied, it would all be all right. 
Yeah. It would be very bad for the bully. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. I, didn't, uh, I didn't teach him that, but I did get him into an improv class with a really great guy in Milwaukee, an improv uh, group called Organized Chaos. So he learned how to, he learned how to say yes, first rule of improv, and he also learned how to flip it into humor. And so anything anybody comes out at him with, he can, and now sometimes he's annoying as hell because he thinks he's the funniest guy in the world. But he, he, he can flip almost anything into a place where it's not a joke, but it's where it's, it's funny. It's peaceful. But now he's studying Tai Chi. If he studies it enough, he may be able to. I mean, I, I don't think he's going to get bullied anymore. As a, he just got accepted at law school at Lewis and Clark Law School in Portland. And uh, his godfather, his rabbi, I call him his rabbi, his godfather said, the great thing about Julius is that people are always going to underestimate him. And uh, you know from studying Tai Chi and any, that, that you gain a great advantage if the other guy doesn't know who you are. And uh, so he knows, and Julius knows that about himself. And he, so he's in a, it's a good job for a lawyer. It's a good way for, to enter a legal combat or a legal confrontation is if the other guy underestimates you, you're in a good position. Um, anyway, he, back to the story, he lived with me. And when he graduated from high school, he did very well in high school. And he wanted to go to school in wildlife biology. Animals have always been his thing. I took him to zoo. He wanted to go to zoos. I took him to zoos all over the country whenever we had time. We'd go to zoos, and we'd also go find the best hamburger in the neighborhood and have a cheeseburger and go to zoos. And he had encounters with animals in zoos. And, had this, he just, and his knowledge was, most kids, every kid loves dinosaurs, but Julius knew all of the names. And when he saw Jurassic Park, the third one, he wanted to call, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, the guy, the consultant, the dinosaur consultant, who's like, uh, he was, he's the guy who created the Spinosaurus that they have in, uh, I can, I'm blanking on his name. I was going to say Steve Irwin, but that's the crocodile that's guy. The that crocodile. Kind of that's the crocodile, that's right. Right. Uh, uh, he had a bone to pick with Steve Irwin, too. But he wanted to go talk to the guy because he thought he'd made a huge mistake when he created this dinosaur out of nothing. There was no such thing. So Julius wanted to go confront him. He was like 12 or 13 at the time. He wanted to go to college, but there was no college that really focused well near where we lived. He was 18, so I could take him out of the state. I couldn't take him out of the state before because we shared custody. And, and I didn't want to do that to his mom anyway. But he was 18. He wanted to go to school. I said, pick a program where they have what you want, and we'll go there. So he picked Fairbanks, Alaska. I said, mm, no, we have to rethink this. And I gave him five or six places where he could go, L.A., I could go back to work. That would be good for me. Seattle, I could go back to work, or it was at least a nice place to live. Vancouver, uh, which is a great place to live and a great school. And uh, uh, really good. they really actually have a really good, I think they don't call it wildlife biology. I said Montana, thinking he might go for dinosaurs at Montana State. Um, 
or the coast of Maine, anywhere on the coast of Maine, because there's a great school in Arcadia National Park, I think it's called. I can't remember what the school's called. It has a good um, wildlife biology, mostly marine biology. And it's a beautiful part of the world to live in, and you can eat lobster whenever you want, and I love lobster. So, and he picked, uh, luckily for me, he picked Montana, but the University of Montana here in Missoula, because it has, it has at the time, and I think still the, considered the best wildlife biology program. So he got accepted here, but he didn't want to leave me because of the anxiety that the autism spectrum, the Asperger's brings with it. He wanted me to be around, and I was fine for me to leave Milwaukee because I wasn't, nothing was holding me there anymore. The marriage had been dissipated. We're still good friends. We're much better friends now than we were when we were married. Uh, I no longer was a participant in the restaurant, so I moved to Missoula with him, and he went four years here. At the end of that four years, this is getting to Vera. No, no, this is great. I'm like in Missoula with you now traveling. And then I'm like, oh, that's awesome. You got to spend, I'm thinking how much fishing you got to do. Oh, and yeah. Then, and then the land. And I'm just, yeah. yeah. And I bought a house out just outside of town, just west of town on 22 acres, uh, deer in the yard every morning and every evening, a black bear up at the top of the hill, a cougar, a mountain lion on the front porch one one night. The dog's going crazy. I was in the hospital getting my hip replaced, but my son was there and his mom was there. The dog's going crazy in the middle of the night. They get up. My son goes to the to the front porch and looks out, turns on the light, and there's a cougar just leaving the front porch. And the way he tells the story, the cougar stopped and turned and looked at him and held the look for a second and then turned and went into the shadows. I mean, my son has a good dramatic imagination so who knows what happened but he felt like there was that connection again um yeah it was it was a beautiful place to spend five five years he took him four and a half years to finish his degree uh at the end of his degree he'd written a couple of papers with professors there had his name on papers didn't know what he wanted to do thought he probably should get a master's the people at Ohio State University, or as we're now told to say, the Ohio State University, they're trying to patent the name, the word the for their school, uh, offered him a lot of money and a, a full ride and a stipend to come and write his master's there because he's good. And he had had an original idea that it, he'd put in a paper that he'd written as his senior thesis that they liked. And it got, it, supposedly it's been published what was the original idea? Was there anything, I mean, even generally, I'm just... Right. There's an area of wildlife biology called, some, some universities are calling it human dimension. Some people are calling it value orientation. And it, it talks about the interface between nature and mankind and human beings. We tend to, human beings, tend to think of ourselves as above and beyond the natural world forgetting that we are part of the natural world. Now, we've managed, as Bill McKibben has said in his original book, The End of Nature and Then in Earth, we've managed to pretty much bring ourselves into a position where nature will not continue to exist unless we manage it correctly. We have to now take responsibility for nature. For thousands of years, we've been just trying to 
press it down away from us and rise above it and think of ourselves as superior to everything else. We have to now embrace it the way Aboriginal peoples have always embraced it. Uh, we tend to think that we're better than the Indian that lives here. We're better than the, the uh, uh, Maori that live in New Zealand. We tend to think that we're better than the Aboriginals. And as I said before in this conversation, uh, they're not wrong always. And we're not always right. We know that now because now scientists all over the world are telling us we've done so much to accelerate climate change that the world probably isn't going to come to an end because like again like they say in jurassic world life finds a way and life will find a way humankind may not find a way but anyway that's a whole nother story um i want you to continue because this is good um but the last guest or the first guest of the day we were talking about animal lessons oh. and so he comes from the anai people from uh, the north above the Arctic Circle. Oh, right. And all of his work is up there. Right. And we were just talking about, you know, the traditions and the culture. And one of the lessons that he was so gracious to speak about was, why do you think all these whales and animals are here? Do you think we just like, they're just here because we live with them? He's like, this is 10,000 years of conservation to create a home and an ecosystem. Right. So all the stuff we've done is to learn the animal lessons and then apply them as we live next to the land, next to the trees, next to the polar bears. Right. Because, you know, he said, and it's funny because then when other people show up, they're like, hey, look at all these whales. <laughs> And then he's like, but don't think that it wasn't constructed by this relationship. Right. You know, because we made a place for them and then they would come to that place. Right. You know, and then when when there's hunting that happens, there is uh, the animal gives themselves to the hunter. It was a really interesting podcast and, and it just spoke to what you were saying. And then also the work your son has put into the world. And so I think that's important. His connection to animals is he's he's held on to that and he understands it and has a tremendous amount of respect for that and and he's approached it from a scientific or did for most of his academic career approach it from a scientific point of view halfway through writing his masters he began to think that this notion of human dimension which he had he'd not created somebody else created but it's a sort of it's a new element of wildlife biology and of the way they think about the science uh he f began to feel like he wanted to take that more into the realm of the human that he could actually have more influence and more more influence not power but more influence on the world if he could deal with humans' relationship to the natural world rather than with just the natural world, the science of the natural world. And at that point, he stopped working, and it, this was tougher for me because he, he no longer got the free ride. Scientists get a free ride, but uh, humanists don't necessarily get a free ride. So he changed his major to a master's of natural... M-E-N-R, Masters of the Environment and Natural Resources, which is a professional 
uh, master's degree that enables you to go to work in the not-for-profit world, which is quite huge. And when it comes to the natural world, the people of that, a lot of people of like minds trying to protect and, and preserve the natural world and understand it. By the time he finished or was finishing his master's, he realized that, that he could have even more influence and more and do more of bring more of himself to it if he knew if he understood the law environmental law so now he's moving to Oregon to Portland Oregon I'm moving with him because I like being around him and he likes being around he no longer really needs me but I think I might have come to a point where I need him just as a talisman or as a as a, a being to be around i like being around him because he's really an impressive individual but he's going to study environmental law at lewis and clark in portland which is some people say the best uh, environmental law school in the country that or vermont law school and they have a program in animal law where he can really focus on animal law and he wants to speak for the animals he wants to defend the animals the whales that people still are slaughtering. Um, and uh, I can't wait to see what he does, this next iteration of my son, which I've watched fairly closely since he was an infant. I've watched him learn how his hand, we were talking about the hand before and the palm. When you're an infant, if you've ever spent a lot of time with an infant, it's like the first toy that they have is their hand when they're just weeks old or months old, they learn how this thing works and watching, and I was home with him all the time, and watching him learn how this thing worked and learn how to enjoy this thing and learned what it could do and learn how it could throw something across the room, just learn how it, it was fascinating. So watching this guy learn from the time he was little and still learning constantly is fascinating. It's probably the main reason like why I like to stick around him. So I went to Columbus with him because I went to Missoula with him when he and he wanted he said they offered a lot of money. He said, I really want to do this, but I don't want to leave you and I don't want you to leave me. Will you move there with me? And I said, yes, I left. I sold my house on 22 acres, left this place that was magical to me and went to Columbus and lived in the flatlands of Ohio and uh, uh, in an apartment, which was a bit of a hardship, but not that much of a hardship. We all make sacrifices. And uh, I lived there with him. And when I moved there, I'd known a fellow named Jeremy Scher here in Missoula as an actor and a bit of an entrepreneur at the time. I had a, had a, a health bar business that he was part of. And when I, he found out I was moving to Columbus, he said, oh, look up my friend Vera Brunner-Sung. She lives there now. She used to live and teach here at the University of Montana. She moved. She has a job. She lives in Columbus, and she'll help you find your way around. She teaches film. And the, you know, the, the Ohio State University doesn't have a film department. They have a film specialty as part of the theater department. But I emailed Vera, and we got together and had coffee, and it happened that she was making a feature, narrative feature, or working on writing a script for one. And she'd always done experimental documentaries. 
and she wanted to know how to talk to and be with actors. So she asked me if I would come in and talk to her, record, if she could record her talking to me, asking me questions and me, and obviously, as you know now, uh, if you get me started, I'll talk for a long time. And uh, we recorded about, I think, the first session, maybe three and a half hours. And then we did another session of a couple of hours. So we had, we had a total of about five and a half, almost six hours of audio, but no video to go with. And then she said, I'm going to make a movie, a documentary short about this. And I said, well, what are they going to look at? Because she just recorded our voice, just the way you're doing now. She recorded it. And so she thought, the first thought was, well, I'll come and follow you around and film you doing some of the things you do. I was taking a dance class. She did that, and that was pretty boring because it was a dance class for people over 55. And we spent the first half hour in a chair, sort of reaching for the sky. I mean, it actually works really well. And, uh, and it, it's a good... Uh, it's a good class. And what happens to the human body as it ages is the tissue can align faster. And so what I like to say, a little goes a long way. Right. You know, and it's something that we don't realize as younger folk, because we were all always younger, I believe, I hope. Yeah, I just learned that Japanese have a very specific thing in dance about the sphere that the younger people work with and carry and how the older body does exactly what you said. It actually adapts faster and it carries the experience. I just got it. I found out this morning, I'll tell you this now, my teacher in this in motion class that I do asked me if I wanted to build a dance with her. Now she's 25, 26, and I'm 73. I said, sure, but it'll obviously going to have to be about this age difference because that's what the audience is going to perceive primarily. She said, well, let's just work on it and we'll, we'll make this dance, we'll conceive it, and then we'll submit it and see if it gets accepted. It just comp there's a competition and there's a big performance at the Wexner Art Center at the end in Columbus. Uh, the guy who just bowed out of Victoria's Secret, he's made so much money from Victoria's Secret and Abercrombie and Fitch and Express and all these clothing things that he's endowed the Medical Center in Columbus, he endowed the Art Center in Columbus. And I found out this morning that our we feel we we devised it and then we uh, filmed it and sent it in in this competition. And I just found out this morning, Chloe is her name. She sent me an email that said, Congratulations, partner. So we got accepted. So we're going to now we have a month to really build the details of the stance. And I'm really looking forward to it because it's we have a very exciting. It's very exciting working with her because she's a beautiful dancer. And she likes the way I, I danced in New York. As I said, I studied uh, movement constantly and I did a play in 1972 called Tooth of Crime, a Sam Shepard play that uh, was about music. It's a really great play. And I had to learn a lot about different jazz, rock and, and jazz and rock and roll and fusion and stuff like that. And I shaved my head for it. Shepard write, writes the character as looking a little bit like Keith Richards. But I thought that was a little old school and I wanted to move it. And punk was, this is 1972, so punk wasn't, 
quite in the public eye yet, but I thought I, I didn't shave my head, but I had a woman cut it with fingernail scissors so that it looked like a lawnmower. If you look closely at it, it looked like I'd cut it with a lawn, a small lawnmower. But it looked really mean and foul and it looked cool. And I liked having it shaved because people would come up and touch my head. So I decided to, it was another time when I decided to quit acting. I quit acting and started dancing. And I studied with Eric Hawkins, uh, who was one of Martha Graham's husbands and a good dancer in his own. So I studied with his company and was asked to join a, a subsidiary company of that country company, which I can't remember the name of, but a guy named Bob Yan, who was one of Hawkins' main dancers, was starting a second company. Dancers work really hard and you beat the crap out of your body and you don't get paid, <laughs> and you have to end up living in Jersey City or somewhere like that, and you really suffer for your art. And so after about uh, eight months of keeping my head shaved and dancing, I was a sissy, and I said, I'm going to go back to acting. So I started growing my hair, went back to But I have danced before, and I know something about my dance, and I my body, and I, I danced L'Histoire de Soldat, the Stravinsky piece in Princeton for a woman that I knew very well, uh, who was a choreographer named Gula Abrahams, who had choreographed me in a production of The Tempest, and she wanted to do, wanted me to play the devil in uh, uh, L'Histoire de Soldat, the History of Soldier's Story, and uh, so we danced that in Princeton, and so I've danced a lot, so it's not a new thing for me to be dancing with Chloe, but it's a revisiting of something that I haven't really done. And my body's aged a lot since I was in my 30s dancing L'Histoire de Soldat or dancing, or in my 20s when I was dancing with Hawkins. And learning this uh, new body and learning what, how it communicates with this younger body has been um, a really great experience. And I, and oh, that's what I was gonna say. The nice thing about her, because she's a dancer, and a dancer will start with emotion and find, see that motion and let that, let that take their body and their being where it goes. As an actor, I've always worked with a narrative, and I like a narrative. And so the fusion of my needs for that narrative structure with her needs to just follow her body has been a wonderful experience so far. And it's going to be a great month collaborating with her and finding, building the details. We don't have, we have the whole dance sketched out, but it's a, a good story. I'm actually doing it in drag as of now, because we thought that a 25 year old woman and a 73 year old man, an audience might immediately have some misconceptions. So I'm going to do it in drag as, as maybe the older version of her, maybe just uh, an older woman. It's up to the audience to make those assumptions. Or like a Shakespeare play where men had sometimes played women. Exactly. Men, play, men played women all the time. It touches all those bases for me, having done a lot of Shakespeare as an actor. And also I know from having done clown work that if you put a man in a dress... It's a laugh right away. Even if they don't laugh all the time, they start with a bubble, and it's and you can you can work with people better when they've got a bubble going. So it's going to be a fun process. 
to work with her. But anyway, that jumped ahead. But with Vera, so we talked for a bunch of hours recorded, and then she filmed some of me at this in motion class, and it was not very interesting. And I don't really live a very interesting life. And I didn't want to do a reality TV, and she didn't want to do that too. She's a much more interesting person and artist than that. So she picked a narrative thread out of this six hours of of audio that we'd done, that a, a thread that she wanted, a story that she wanted to tell, and she thought she could work with me. And then she, we went in the studio for, I think, three days or two days and did shot staged things in sort of anonymous spaces. And I'd change my hair. I did a lot. I didn't really do makeup, but I can, you can do a lot with hair. I have wonderful uh, Broadway producer, director, Fred Zolo, who directed me in a, a play called Talk Radio with Eric Bogosian. Um, uh, really good play. I did it at public theater. He, he once said to me in front of a lot of people, you're the best hair actor in New York. Because I've always thought that you can do a lot of character building with your hair. Uh, De Niro does it. He's much better than me. I don't know how he manages to grow his hair as fast as he grows it. I mean, you're speaking to that transformational ability of actors, too. I right. mean, even on the other side of the fence, you know, that's what the makeup and the hair department tells the director. Oh, yeah, we can put the character in the hair or like we need to make them look how much younger or like older. Well, let's just switch we just it. You can do it with the hair. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then you can convey archetypes, you know, really quick. Yeah. Yeah. Instantly. Because there was a study done. Uh, Psychology Today did a study years ago that the, if you're going into interview for a job, the first thing and the most important thing that people look at is your shoes. If you're going in for a promotion or to get asked to do a special project, the most important thing is your hair. And, it, you know, at Psychology Today, it was a good magazine. There's good science behind it. So I, I trust that. And it is true. I think uh, what you, you, that impression that you make when you're sitting across the table from someone and they're looking at your face, what they're seeing initially is a silhouette and your hair has a lot to do with that. And they find detail, the longer they talk to you, they find more detail in your face and, and, you know, and get deeper into you if they're paying attention. Um, <laughs> they have to be paying attention. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't pay attention as we've already discussed, but... Uh, well, and then circling back, so, the process started, the six hours, six and a half hours of audio was refined, and then Vera chose a through line. And then, yeah, I guess how long did it take for the film to come together? Or like what happened within the through line? Because we were talking about the uh, anonymous spaces that she was filming you in, right? which it comes off. I mean, I watched the film and there is a powerful thing that comes through with it. And just being able to feel you putting in these emotions for the the archetype that they conveyed as the Mark Metcalf character. And then basically then having you put yourself in that archetype, even though you're much you're a much more seasoned human than any archetype. Thank you. It's one of the reasons that that niching out betrays you as a human because it it limits you. You become limited if you allow yourself to, as I did, I think, when I was an actor, why I walked away. 
she had me put on costumes. We did costume fittings so I could do the Niedermeyer character and I could do the, the uh, master from Buffy the Vampire Slayer character. I, I think even more that one shot is more of Game of Thrones kind of uh, villain kind of guy. The maestro is more of a suave guy, you know, very full of himself. So the three archetypes that I've or icons that I people give me credit for creating, and I didn't because it happens with a lot of people and writers and everything, but the Niedermeyer character, the maestro from Seinfeld, and the master from Buffy the Vampire Slayer are sort of the three things that I've been, parts that I've been lucky enough to be able to do that are different enough that, uh, and, and each sort of recognizable. I mean, there's a whole bunch of, of, women who were empowered by Buffy the Vampire Slayer, who found the first time they saw a woman that held the power of life and death in her hands and that could make decisions and made her own decisions, a young woman. So that's, there's an iconography to that, that series. And I was lucky enough to play the first of what they call the big bads. And the, the maestro character in, was just two episodes of Seinfeld but something about the writing and the show and the way I played it, because people, lots of times people will say to me, that's my favorite episode, the doll or the maestro, that character, I love it. And you can see Seinfeld two or three times a night for a while. Uh, so I've been, I've been really lucky to play those three iconic characters well for me one of the parts that i liked the most was uh the end i got to see some of your tai chi movements and then you having fun and uh, then i realized that oh that's what it's about like moving from the beginning you know moving from the beginning from this controlled state to this freed state right and then to see you be free i feel like the audience goes on that journey with you that's great if they do. I'm glad, I'm glad to hear you say that because it's, it's an experience for me. And making it, there was a point at which we shot and I said to Vera, I feel, and I, she'd show me stuff and I'd say, I think I'm coming off as a real asshole, as a real jerk here. And I, you know, I, that may be the case. If that's what you see, that's what you see. And that's when she said, well, I'm going to shoot, I want to record some more. And I want to shoot some. She puts my son into it, and because she wanted to talk about parenting, and and it was great that she did it because it to a way in a way it it redeems me for myself. Uh, uh, my project for the last twenty five years has been my son, and uh, uh, it's not like an acting job, but it is the way I take acting jobs. It's I take it very seriously. It's my life, and it's been my life. And I'm, and I, I feel like I've done a good job. And I mean, he, he did most of the work. I just had to be there to say, oh, wait a minute, you don't want to go that way. <laughs> it's scary that way. So she redeemed me. And then she allowed me to sort of play the playfulness at the end, which, which I'm glad that the audience follows that journey because it gets pretty vulnerable and pretty, uh, people have said, very moving. Uh, and then it, at the end, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's, I, I like the way it, I like the way she shaped it. And that's what Vera's done. She's, she's given me, she gave me back myself. She took me by filming me and done it at my soul. And then she gave me, gave it back to me by the end of the movie in some way. What did it feel like 
to premiere the short film at Sundance this year. Well, I'd never been to Sundance. Uh, I've been to film. I worked for the Milwaukee Film Festival for a long time, created a program for them when I lived there to educate high school kids on how to write films and how to make films. And I'd never really been interested in going, but it was cool to have this film about me at Sundance where the whole industry goes. And as I said, I walked away in 2000. You don't walk away without looking back. I've looked back many times and thought, eh, because it is nice. It's seductive. And it's nice. And good work can be done. I've done some good work on film. I don't mean to denigrate all the work I've done. I've done some good acting, I think, stuff I'm proud of and happy with. Those three characters that I mentioned before are three of them. And I would like to. I've thought for probably since I left, I've thought, okay, to a certain degree of arrogance, but I thought I've got these three iconic characters that other people call iconic characters, but I sort of see them that way too in some way. And I've got another one in me or two. And I wouldn't mind... It's nice to do a character, to play the giver. I did the giver at first stage in Lois Lowry's book, and I played the, the part that Jeff Bridges does in the movie, but we did it before the movie, and I brought my own vision of it, which was not, I think, the cover of the book, and the way Bridges does it is a little bit like... And it's, it's there in the book. There's a little... Christian Western iconography in there where he's a little bit like Santa Claus. And I figure that a guy that takes on the responsibility of of a culture's memory, emotional and historical memory, is going to be a little bit more wasted by carrying that burden. So I played him more like an Auschwitz survivor cut my hair back really slow, played him with a broken body. And it was, it was, they liked it. It it worked. And it was just, I just took it and twisted her book a little bit out. But she came and saw it too, and she actually liked it. I don't think she fell in love with it, but she liked it and appreciated what I'd tried to do with it. Vera and I have talked about managed expectations because it was a thrill to have this movie, her movie, accepted at Sundance. 10,000 short films are submitted. They choose 73. This year, they chose 73. For her, it was that. For me, it was a chance for the industry to see, oh, he's not... On my IMDb page, there's actually conversations used to be. I don't know if it's changed or not. At the end, and there was a long conversation among in the comments section. Isn't he dead? I thought he was dead. Because, you know, you walk away and you're gone for a while and they don't see you. And I've done work. I've worked with a lot of young filmmakers you know, when I lived in Wisconsin, because there's a lot of young filmmakers there, and I thought I could maybe teach them something, and I could also keep my hand in. I like, as whatever the camera we've discussed, the camera does to you. I don't mind giving up my soul, having it steal my soul, uh, if it's a good character, an interesting character, and if I've got room to play. And uh, uh, so, for me, going to Sundance was. This is managed expectations. I'm not sure I managed my expectations that well. But I thought this is a chance for the industry to see that I'm, A, I'm not dead, one, that I'm actually very much alive, and that I still am in the creating stories business. I don't think of it as a business. I think of it as what I do. 
it's a way of letting them know that I am actually available. If you've got something you want me to do, ask me, and I'll do it, because I like to work. I really like to work. I'm enjoying the hell out of working, maybe building this dance with Chloe. As I said before, I love collaboration. I love working with other people and making things, making stories and making things that affect an audience, that influence an audience, that maybe challenge them or make them think or make them feel things that they maybe haven't been wanting to feel. And so, yeah, so I Sundance was fun for me because I thought... It was, you know, a way of uh, re-jumpstarting my career again, my so-called career that I walked away from 10 years ago. 20 years ago, my God. 2000, 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a different human now than I was then. Yeah, it's true. This human journey is long. The creators and the filmmakers and these newer producers that get the age of authenticity... Because that's where we're at now. If it's not authentic, you can just take it out the door. Right. And they're all trying to fake the authenticity. But to get that, the shift has to happen behind the camera and in front of the camera. Right. And to know that the actors exist that are complex beings and to know that the people behind the camera, we don't need to put people in niches. Sometimes art, archetypes are good for stories because right. we all need all of that. But as, as something changes, you know, so will the stories. I mean, right. one of the stories I just wrote was about four grandmas trying to transcend life. And they, it gets stopped because one of the favorite granddaughters of one of the grandmas is getting married. And so they have to stop their um, journey of transcendence because right. they're part of this group called Los Espiritus, which is an international organization right. for the eldest surviving matriarchs in their mm. families to transcend life. Age gracefully like wine or cheese. Right. You know? Is this an actual organization or part of your narrative? It's a script. I wrote it. Cool. But, but the whole point was that we're not valuing these older actors who have so much cultural resonance across the board. Right. And, like, the entertainment industry is extremely flawed because when you trade in something for short-term transactional value, you actually create no long-term sustainability. And when you do that, you're actually cutting the culture off from development. You're going to get hits every now and then. Let's not, you know, lie. But at the same time, there's a power structure behind it that benefits from valuing the young, valuing, and then trading out one icon for another icon. But then you actually miss the complexities of the human journey and you actually miss the new stories that are emerging into right. the world. Right. And so for me, there was another person who lives in your Columbus, Ohio creative community, Jenny Deller, a filmmaker that Vera knew. Right. And she was always the cooler older sister for me and a friend, Michael Deller, who's now become my lifelong composer. Right. So I tried to develop, um, relationships that I can try to work with for the long haul. We are here for this marathon. And if you think it's a sprint, right? Yeah. Well, I'll be able to see you in those sprinting shorts. I'll be <laughs> able to see you trying to get that deal when you don't know, Hey, it's about the heart 
versus that transaction. Oh, you'll find the people that want the transactional reality. Uh, they will line up on the block. Uh, but guess what? When they get in front of your camera, their presence to present a performance that can help an audience transcend their own physical reality won't be very much. Right. And so that's, that's why I'm here, you know? And in a way, that's why I started this podcast, just to let people know I'm still alive. Right. Because the entertainment industry would have you believe there are only poster children. Right. But in the wake of poster children, there's all these wonderful performers and all these wonderful creative right. people. Yeah. So I just commend you for being part of that creative community because in a way, the Jenny Deller Vera connection, then the Mark Metcalf connection, that's really what brought us here. I mean, like, yeah, it was the Big Sky Film Festival, but in the end when Vera was like, oh yeah, I know Jenny Deller. I'm like, cool. That's awesome. Yeah. The cool older that's sister. That's so great. You didn't know that before you had her down here. Oh, that's a great connection. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's nice. And so going back to this film, because I think we've probably talked a lot about a lot of stuff, but is is there any role that out of this life's journey is your favorite? And I think what I'll do is I'll bring up music to this one. So whatever you think. You mean of the things that I've done? That yeah, I'm, and it can be a role as a human, role as a parent. I mean, whatever, well, you know, role as an actor, you know, whatever that role is that really makes this human journey worth it. Because right. whatever keeps our well full is kind of what keeps us creating. Yeah. And so... Well, parent, parenting uh, my son and the journey I've had with him uh, and his mother is, because uh, we're still close, is probably the most important work that I've done. And and it, it's hopefully, I mean, we, I, I say in the movie, uh, I can't remember how I say it, but basically I say, when you die, you're dead. That's it. Nothing left. But there is thing, or there are things left. Uh, Keanu Reeves, of all people, said something. Uh, Stephen Colbert is on the Stephen Colbert show, and Stephen Colbert said, "So, what do you think happens when people die?" And without missing a beat, Keanu Reeves, who's not a trivial person, I don't think. I might have thought of him that way before, but he said, "I think that when we die, the people that love us are very sad." And that was plenty. That was it. So. There is something left when you die. There's the people that you affected, that you lived with, that you loved, that you performed in front of. So, um, you know, I've, I'm, I'll be 74 in about three weeks. Uh, who knows how much longer I've got? I'm, you know, I don't, like Woody Allen says, uh, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. I'm more afraid of dying than I am of death. But... I want to leave. I've left my son. He'll carry me with him and maybe pass me on to his children. I've also maybe left something in people's minds with some of these and hearts with some of these characters that I've played in performances. And perhaps with this movie, uh, there have been in Sundance. I was the biggest reward of Sundance for me was several young performers who were there. Uh, as as actors in other movies came up to me after seeing it and said, thank you, in sincere way th that I believed, thank you, it, that you really made me think about my life as an artist in this medium. 
And, and maybe they'll carry that for a week, maybe they'll carry that for a month, maybe they'll think about that something that they saw or felt that, that had to do not just with something I was saying, but with what Vera and I and Ori, the cinematographer, created out of this airy nothing that existed between us. Maybe that will be something that they can take with them for a long time and into their work. And that's how we pass it forward or pass it on. I've often been guilty about being an actor, especially with the uh, uh, political climate that we've been living in for the last, certainly the last three years and more than that, if you've been paying attention, that acting is not really, it's kind of a trivial thing. It doesn't really, what does it do? But it does, if it does affect people and carry it forward, if they carry it forward something that I and other people have worked to create and carry it forward into their life and make it uh, uh, more harmonious, more peaceful, more creative, more imaginative. If it moves it towards that rather than towards the competition and conflict and war that uh, so many things tend to move us towards, uh, then, then okay, I'll whittle less something. Thank you for listening to this episode of the American Filmmaker Podcast. I appreciate the time I spent with Mark and all of the lessons that he shared with us from the front lines of his life and his creative experiences collaborating with people to make work that moves people's soul. In the show notes, I will put links to all of Mark's work. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the American Filmmaker Podcast. My name is Josh Hyde, and I am the host and producer, and the music for this episode was created by Michael J. Deller of the Budos Band and Charles Bradley and his extraordinaires. Thank you for being part of my creative community, Michael Deller. We hope you enjoyed episode 51 of the American Filmmaker Podcast. Our goal is to help you meet the creators, the filmmakers, the storytellers behind all of these creative works. Because when people have a direct interaction, I think that's how we get to a more authentic relationship with the type of media that we consume and the type of people that we follow. Thank you for listening to this episode, and we will see you next time from the front lines of creativity, storytelling, and filmmaking in the world today. <laughs>